Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come here tonight and to lift up voices and song and to worship you and praise you that way and then to study scripture. Help our study be beneficial, Father, to our lives so we can take your word and learn from it. And we thank you, Father, that we have so many kids here today, and that's just a great thing. And so bless them and bless their study through Awana and the opportunity to learn Scripture and to change their lives in some way. So we thank you for that and for the workers and for the parents. Let's just have a good day to bless you and serve you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know. I told you last week today be chaotic, and I was right. It's a chaotic day. It's great chaos. Uh, anybody get down to the food trucks yet? Get something to eat? I saw some of you pretty good. And uh, it'll be, they'll still be there, I think, until 7.30, so we'll be through about 7 o'clock. So you go on down there. Those are some great folks down there. They're kind enough to be here. I think they're coming again in October. And that's a great opportunity for us to have some folks uh, here on our campus. And we have a bunch of new people in Awana, and that is a fantastic situation. If you ever feel led by the Lord to work in Awana, it's a blessing, and you'll, uh, you'll, you'll have a good time doing that. Um, we're going to embark today, since it's kind of the start of the, the kind of the church year, when all the church things kick back up, it's happening now, it all kind of coincides with school. And so we'll, we're going to start uh, then on Wednesday night to study um, into the book of Romans. Romans is written by Paul. I mean, there's just, it's just flat out the way it is. He, he says he wrote it. Even liberal scholars uh, who I don't put much stock in will admit Paul wrote Romans. Not much debate about it. It is the one book that Paul wrote to a church he never started and had not yet been to. Even when he wrote First and Second Timothy and wrote Titus, Paul had uh, sent Timothy to Ephesus. He sent Titus to Crete. So he was, in essence, writing to places he had been or sent people to uh, in those situations. Some have said that Romans is probably the clearest presentation of the gospel that there is. And that's true. I mean, the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are fantastic books because they present the gospel of Jesus. But in terms of just sharing it, in terms of eloquently sharing what it is, you know, you know, in some way articulating it, Paul does that in the book of Romans. It is gospel pure through and through. And what's interesting about the book of Romans is the impact that it has had on our lives, even though we may not have read it. And by the way, if you have, I mean, most of you probably read it, but if you haven't read it recently, you need to read it. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour to read it. Sit down and read it. And then as we go through this year, just, you know, every few weeks, every month, read some more of it. But you need to sit down at least one time and read it. But the impact that the Romans has had, and just in changing lives, uh, Augustine, who was a, a great Latin church father in the fourth century, after Paul, you know, in order of the sequence, he was the greatest of the theological guys we had, the greatest thinkers. He impacts the world today in ways people don't understand. He impacted the reformers, Lutheran and Calvin. Uh, he was uh, living a very immoral life. His mama, Monica, constantly prayed for his salvation. He received um, the ability, or he received the teaching position in Milan of, of uh, rhetoric. He was there under the influence of uh, Bishop Ambrose. And uh, he was uh, contemplating life, and one time he was kind of out in the garden. He heard voices like the child telling him to go pick up and read. He understood that he needed to go and pick up God's word wherever he had left off. He went over uh, and found himself in the book of Romans. And a man who led a very immoral lifestyle 
read Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. It says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. I mean, that changed his life. He became a follower of Christ. And Augustine, whether you realize it or not, is probably the greatest thinker after Paul in the first 14, 1500 years of the church. And it's impacted every one of us, even if you don't know it, after him. In the 1500s and 16th century, there was a monk named Martin Luther who strove to be saved through everything the Catholic Church had to offer. He was constantly antagonizing, struggling with his relationship with God, knowing there was something missing. He was sent to a rather remote outpost at Wittenberg to teach at the school there. He was teaching Psalms and he was teaching uh, the book of Romans in about 1515. And He had always believed that the righteousness of God was God's righteousness, that God was righteous, which he is, but that God's righteousness was there to judge us and condemn us, and he struggled with that. And as he's preparing for Romans, he read a passage that is a quotation out of Habakkuk 2.4. For in it, in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And at that moment, Luther says, it says, if you've been born again, he realized that the righteousness that they were talking about was not God being righteous, though that's true, but the righteousness that God gave us in Jesus Christ and that we could be righteous, but we couldn't do it on our own works. And so Luther came to understand what is the theme of the book of Romans. It is simply this, that we as sinful men and women living with that sin, can receive the forgiveness of that sin and be declared just or right in the eyes of God because of God's grace alone in Christ alone through faith alone. And here is what Romans is all about. This is the gospel. That we are saved or we are made right in the eyes of God in God's grace alone, in Jesus Christ, by God's grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone through faith alone. We are saved by grace in Christ through faith. That is how we are made right. That's how we are justified or put in a position where God declares us righteous. And so really the theme of Romans, and then people debate back and forth, but it's about justification, which is the same thing as righteousness. And to be justified means to be declared right by God. It's not something that we have done, something that we earned, or something we can bring about. It's something that God does, and only God does, in what God declares about us. A friend of mine once said to be justified means, it sounds like, it means it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that sounds catchy, but that's not true. Justification means you have sinned. I have sinned. And our sin separates us from God, and there's nothing we can do about our sin. Our sin is very serious. It's so serious that God had to do something about it. And in God doing something about us, about that sin, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, God, as we put our faith in him, because of the grace he has and the faith he calls, even the faith we have he gives us, as we put our faith in him and trust him to be our savior, God, in only way that God can, declares us right. It's not that we become righteous. It's not that all of a sudden we become sinless. It's that in Christ, God declares us to be right. And that's what makes Romans so important, is it declare, it presents to us clearly and in a way that we can understand how it is that we are saved. At the same time, it is a book that is so deep, it is almost impossible to adequately understand it. It was written by Paul 
most likely in the early winter of 57 AD, from Corinth on his third missionary journey. If you read through the book of Acts and through the book of Romans, you begin to understand that Paul was wrapping up his third journey. He was going to go to Jerusalem to take an offering there, and then he wanted to set out, and he even says so in Romans, to Spain. He had done his work in and around the Aegean Sea, in, you know, in what we call Turkey, in the area around Greece, and all of that. He had done all the work he needed to do. I mean, the, the churches were established. He wanted to go to the furthest outpost west of Rome in the Roman colony, in the Roman Empire, and that was Spain. Uh, no one, to his knowledge, had been out there yet in the way that he would go. But he needed to go and pass through Rome and see if Rome could be kind of his base of operations. There were already Christians in Rome. The church was established there. We have no idea who established it. It wasn't Peter. Peter hadn't been to Rome yet. He lived up in Rome, but he's not there yet. Probably in Acts chapter 2, when people from all over the world became followers of Christ, and you Acts chapter 7, they're dispersed. And actually, in Acts chapter 8, they're dispersed throughout the world. They went back to Rome and established a church. So Paul was going to go there, and Paul's philosophy in going was not to go to some place where someone else had already established a church. He did not want to work in another man's field. But no one else had really started Rome, and so he wanted to go there and to, and to kind of spend some time there and then go to Spain. So with that in mind, we pick up in Romans chapter 1, and we'll see some of that. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul says he is a bondservant. The word doulos means to be a slave or a servant. Oftentimes it depicted someone who was actually in servitude. Sometimes it's translated, depending on the context, slave. Sometimes it's translated servant. Um, it is not so much that we are forcibly made slaves of Christ, but that we are serving Christ. We all serve a master. Jesus says, you know, no one can serve two masters, but you are going to serve a master. And so Paul recognizes that he serves Jesus Christ. But in, in doing that, Paul also says this, or Christ Jesus, he is called as an apostle, which is extremely important because as an apostle, he had authority that the average person didn't have. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostello. It means one who is sent or commissioned for a particular task. And we know and we see when we read the Gospels that Jesus originally had 12 men called apostles. One of them was Judas betrayed. He left and in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1, uh, and, and, and on in, they begin the process of replacing uh, Judas. And, they, and they, they do that with Matthias. But there were some other men that became apostles as well. James, the brother of Jesus. Jude, the brother of Jesus. And Paul. So at least those three men also became apostles. To be an apostle, you had to experience or see the resurrected Jesus. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, we know, on Acts chapter 9 to the road to, uh, the road to Damascus. And in addition to seeing the resurrected Jesus, you then had to be called by him for the purpose of serving him in an authoritative way. And that's exactly what happened for Paul. He was called in an authoritative way. So he was a servant of all people, but he carried with him a degree of authority. That didn't, authority didn't mean he was a ruler. It didn't mean he was there to dominate people, but it meant that he had a specific purpose. And Christ, it says, called him, selected him, moved him in that capacity to be called by Christ is to understand that Christ essentially has a task for us. Let me say this. All of us are in some way called by Christ. We are certainly, if we are a follower of Jesus, have been called unto salvation. He has called us and brought us to be saved. But all of us, once we are saved, have callings in life. Now, you know, as a pastor, I have a calling. I have a calling to pastor. 
and uh, that's this, this, this my calling. Sometimes we have the idea that pastors and ministers are called, and that's it. All of us are called. Now, I'm not here to say you may be called in a specific vocation or line of work or a specific task, but somehow God has called you. He has, in essence, set you aside for something. It may be several somethings. Part of our task in life is to understand the calling of God upon us. And let me just say, from a very practical standpoint, the best way to understand what God has called you to do, I know you need to pray and read the Bible. I got all that. You can come ask me. I'll tell you what I think you ought to do. That's nothing else different altogether. Whatever it is that you were really good at and whatever it is you really like to do may have something to do with your calling. I am not called to sing. I may like to do it, but I am horrible at it. I am the worst of all the people in here who sing. I'm the worst. I never sing. If you ever notice me in the worst, I never sing. I don't sing because I am so unbelievably bad that people say, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The Lord has certain exceptions. I'm one of them. So I never sing. Now in the car, I sing great. Now I'm singing different stuff, but I'm singing fine. So even if I wanted to sing, even if I like to sing, I stink at singing. And by the way, some of you do too. You need to realize that. Some of you want to ask me, I'll tell you who you are. I don't know anybody on this side. I sit on this side, so I'm kind of banking on some of them back there. Further back, not the first, not the first two rows. Y'all are fine. Go back one more row to the left. That's who I'm talking about. So we're set apart. And he's set apart, he says, for the gospel of God. And it's the gospel that comes from God. The gospel is good news. And that's what the word means. And truly, and, and, and the terms are synonymous. The gospel is more of a Latinized version. But it means the idea of that which can change life. It's an announcement. It's a pronouncement of something that is of fundamental importance. And always, 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 always in Scripture, in the New Testament, gospel is related to Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. It's, a, it's an unbelievably versatile word. Sometimes gospel refers to a system of beliefs. Sometimes gospel refers to a concept. Sometimes gospel refers, you know, to some degree to certain things that happen. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is this. The good news is this, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and was then seen. And that's the gospel. So we need to understand that this is the gospel of Jesus, but it's the gospel that comes from God. So Paul is set aside for the gospel, and this is what Paul says in verse 2 which he promised that is God beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. If you remember when we did the study on Hebrews on that Friday night when uh, some of y'all were there and we did a whole study, but even when I preached the very first message on Hebrews, it starts off by telling us that God spoke in the past in different times in different ways through the prophets. And what he spoke about was a revelation that was pointing towards Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Paul is affirming the same thing. Back in the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, which to Paul was the Old Testament, they hadn't written the New Testament yet, he was in the process of writing it. But back then, what it was saying was that foretold of the coming of Christ. That was good news that was coming. Now, this gospel, which was promised beforehand, concerns his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared 
the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice a couple of things here. Was it was concerning his son. The son is, is reference to Jesus. And by the way, the term son is also a title that refers to one's status. So Jesus had the status of son. And here's the thing. He was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. In other words, he was born and retraced back through the tribe of David according to flesh. So here you have a reference to the humanity of Jesus. Paul, writing to a church to he's never been before, kind of laying out his doctrine, his belief. Paul also dealing with some problems that would exist in that church. And later on, we'll see some of the problems. Paul lays out very clearly one understanding of Christ. He was Perfectly and completely human, he was born according to flesh, by flesh, as the descendant of David, which links him back to the royal line for his possession, for his place of being the Messiah. By being a descendant of David, he was in position to be the long-awaited Messiah. He was born according to the flesh, but that was not all. He was declared the Son of God. So it was declared also, speaking of the divinity of Christ, the full deity of Christ, but being declared the Son of God with the power of the resurrection from the dead is an interesting phrase. Because in the way it's written in the Greek language, and if you translate it sometimes in English, it makes it sound like the resurrection declared that Jesus was God's Son. What it's really saying is this. The resurrection declared the power of Jesus as the Son of God. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus demonstrated, declared, and announced the absolute power that he had as God's Son. He is fully, fully man, the descendant of David, fully God in the flesh, and he has a power that is seen at the resurrection. Now, I know we say that God raised Jesus from the dead. It was the power of God. But we understand that there's a power that belongs to Jesus Christ as well. Because the resurrection points to Jesus as being God in the flesh. And if it points to Jesus as being God in the flesh, it points to the power of Christ. It is the power that is important to say. Verse 16, which I'm not going to talk about today, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is life-changing power in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that power resides in a Jesus who was completely God, completely man, who was raised back to life. And so what you have here, in essence, is you see that Jesus, not only in his pre-resurrected state, living as a human in the flesh, but you see in the post-resurrected state, that absolute display of the power that goes there. Now notice what it says in verse 5. It is through whom... We have received grace and apostleship. Now notice, through Jesus, grace is received. Now Paul is kind of talking about himself because they haven't all received apostleship. So his position as an apostle is not something he earned. It is an act of grace. And what you see here then demonstrated or mentioned that we'll see throughout the book of Romans is the concept of grace. Grace is critical in the book of Romans. Because what is, has to be understood is that our salvation is totally by the grace of God. We do not earn salvation. We have to be so careful that in our way of describing salvation, sometimes we describe our salvation in an effort to help people through the process. We describe it in such a way as it appears to depend on us. I've heard somebody say one time, I've heard it many times, I've shared this before, people say God supplies the grace, I supply the faith. No, 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 no. God supplies the grace. God supplies the faith. Faith is a process or a part of grace. 
All we supply is our life. We, we say, this is me. This is all I'm bringing is me. And so the reason that's important is because of the humility. We need to be humble enough to realize that in our sinful state, we cannot bring about anything to instigate or even complete our salvation. It all has to be about God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, you know, we don't, we don't respond in faith. It does not mean that God has made us robots, that we don't, we don't have freedom to live our life and freedom to make choices. The reason we are sinners, not only is because of our birth, we're born that way, but we choose sin. I mean, all throughout the book of Romans, it's going to say we have chosen a path of sin. Well, we have to understand it is God who has chosen a path of grace. And so that grace is a gift. Paul is a great example. What was Paul doing in Acts 9? He was going to Damascus to kill Christians. He had no intent of trusting Christ. He hated Christ. It was only by the grace of God that Paul encountered Jesus and was saved. So Paul experienced the grace and the call of apostleship because of that grace. All of us are saved by grace, and all of us have a calling because of God's grace. So that we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you were also called Jesus Christ. Now, you have the obedience of faith. Be sure that we don't understand that to mean the obedience that produces faith. That means the obedience that is the result of faith. All, Paul says, I have obedience. I'm being obedient as a result of faith. To do what? He says, to go to the Gentiles for, the na- for his name's sake, the name of Christ. So what Paul is saying is this. I'm saved by the grace of God. And in that grace, I have received faith. And in that faith, it produces in me obedience. I am being obedient. And then obedient traces its way all the way back to grace. So even the obedience that I have is not because of something in me. It is because of, it's not because of something I do. It's because of something that has been instilled in me by God through grace and faith. As a result of the faith that I have. I'm obedient. Now, what we ought to understand and realize is that obedience is the evidence of faith. So that if you don't live an obedient life, it is very difficult for you to say that you're a person of faith. We come up with certain categories of Christians. We come up with certain concepts to excuse Christians for living an unfaithful life. If you read this, read scripture at face value, which is always a pretty good way to read it. It makes it pretty clear that a person who does not live like a follower of Christ is not a follower of Christ. How can you say you're a follower of Christ if you don't follow Christ? So if you're not being obedient, it's pretty hard to say you're a follower of Jesus. Because you're not following him. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it is the result of the faith. In your life. That's what we are called to live. A life of obedience. Paul says the obedience that I have is to go among the Gentiles. And among you, you are called also of Jesus Christ. 
So, so Paul says, you also are a result of that. Not from Paul's perspective. But you are called of Jesus Christ. And many of the people at Rome were Gentiles. And so you have here then Paul laying out his credentials in essence. Why is it that Paul can write this letter? I'll quickly go verse 8 uh, through 15 and talk about Paul's greeting. Uh, this is a very typical letter uh, that usually have a greeting at the beginning. Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul is saying people are aware of your faith. Paul is thankful. He is praising God. We ought to thank God for other Christians. We ought to praise God for other Christians. I try on a regular basis. Uh, you know, as I pray for people, I pray for lots of different people, but I always try to pray for the staff that I, that I work with, and, and I pray for them and their families and their children, and I always try to thank God for what they do. Uh, some of them is harder than others, but I always try to thank God for all of them and what they do and, and what I see in their life and what I see of their faith. Um, I don't know that their faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. I don't even know that it's claimed, proclaimed throughout Las Cruces. But we all need to be thankful for that of others. He said, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching or the presentation of the gospel of his son is my witness. How I unceasingly make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So he prays for the church at Rome even though he's never been there. Part of his prayer is that he may come to Rome. We don't know if Paul ever went to Spain. We know he went to Rome. We know he went to Rome in chains twice. At the end of Acts, Paul is sent to Rome as a prisoner. He's released. We know from 2 Timothy and church history that he dies in Rome. Uh, there a period of time lapsed between the first and second imprisonment of Rome. It's possible he went to Spain during that time. Um, verse 11 says, and notice 11 and 12 together. I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He says, I want to come to you to give you a spiritual gift. That's not spiritual gift. That's not one of the gifts of this. It's not like the gift of teaching or the gift of you know, faith. It's, in other words, a gift that is spiritual in nature. If you read the following in verse 11, um, in verse 12, he wants to be encouraged also. So that spiritual gift is a type of encouragement. Paul wants mutual encouragement among followers of Christ. We ought to strive for that, by the way. Believers in Jesus ought to mutually encourage one another. So what he wants is to impart encouragement on them and them impart encouragement upon him, both of their faith. I do not want you, verse 13, to be unaware, brothers. Often I have planned to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing that so far. So that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he wants to go. Share the gospel there, see more people come to Christ, that is the fruit. Notice in verse 14 and 15. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So he says, Greeks and barbarians, uh, barbarians were the people who were kind of outside the Roman Empire. That's how they looked at barbarians. What he's basically saying is, I'm under obligation to preach to all types of Gentiles. Now, to the Jews, they were all kind of barbarians. But Paul says, I'm under gospel, under obligation to share the gospel, period, with people. And to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. An eagerness to preach the gospel, an eagerness to share the gospel. All of us ha ought to have some type of eagerness to serve God. 
Now, ideally, we would all have an eagerness to share the gospel. You may not have an eagerness to preach the gospel, not, certainly not in the sense that I do. But all of us ought to have a desire to have somehow see that the gospel impacts people's lives. All of us ought to have a desire to see that somehow the gospel, the good news of Jesus, impacts the lives of other people to see fruit. So, you know, we do, we do things uh, here at our church. Um, uh, last Saturday, they had a big back-to-school event, back-to-school bash. And the guy wasn't able to be here. I was on vacation with my wife. And uh, I hated missing it, but I heard we have over 800 people who came to our facility. And I sometimes, and we spent, by the way, we spent a considerable, I will be honest with you, we spent a lot of money on that. We spent a lot of money, bunch of money, just bunches of it. We budgeted for it, so it's okay. We printed some extra just because we didn't have quite enough, but we know that. So why do we do that? Because people came on our campus. And people who came on our campus Saturday, you know what some of them did? They came on our campus Sunday. That's what we wanted. No, we didn't Saturday preach the gospel to anybody. I don't think we did. I mean, it wasn't a gospel. It was a fun event. It was just fun. Sunday wasn't fun. No, Sunday was a chance then to preach the gospel. And I heard the message that Barry preached at Miranda, and I heard the message that uh, Brian preached here, and they did a very good job. And what I'm saying to you is, all that we do Wednesday night with the Juan and with the children, having people at the food truck fiesta, all that we do is to try to find a way somehow at some place we can impact people in their life with the gospel. Why is that? Well, if we read in verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. So all that we want to do is take sinful people like us and give them the opportunity to encounter the risen Jesus Christ. So that however God chooses to do it, he can bestow his grace upon them so that they may be, in God's eyes, at some point along the way, righteous. Not because of their doing, because of his doing. Our task is to help people come in contact with the gospel. Because this is what we believe. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ takes people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And that gospel makes them alive in Christ. So that one day they can stand before God. And God can see them as right in his eyes. So, that is, in essence, the theme of the book of Romans that we'll be exploring over the next many, many months. Uh, before I make any final closing comments or announcements, anybody have any questions you want to ask? I probably shouldn't close that. About this, about Romans. This part of Romans. Don't jump ahead to like the 8th chapter. Somebody up there in the ninth chapter. Somebody up in the sound booth. I want to get you up to the ninth chapter. I've got questions. We'll wait. Anything about this? Here's the thing. Uh, Sunday, we are sharing the Lord's Supper together in our morning worship services, all three services, both campuses. So it'll be a time of sharing the Lord's Supper. And so we encourage you to come for that opportunity of celebration, of witness and worship. And then Sunday night, we're very excited, here at this location at 6 o'clock, we're having a baptism service. What's the count we're up to? 13? 13 p. 
people to be baptized Sunday night. So 13 lives were changed. Now here's the thing, here's the thing. If we're talking about the gospel changing lives, and baptism is the picture that changed life, those of you who are a part of our church as followers of Christ, we should be here to celebrate with them. Now, so, you know, unless you're providentially hindered, you know, some, I know a couple of guys got to work somewhere, they already told me. Maybe on vacation. But if, you know, that's not, not going on, we need to be here to celebrate lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to let you out so you can have food truck fiesta. Normally, I know that those of you that, that go in there and have prayer time at 7.15, y'all can go. Tonight, I won't be there. I need to go make an appearance down there, uh, not to eat, but just to greet people. But I may eat also and other things. So we'll see y'all Sunday. Bye.